you know, true worship really is more of a response to how big we see our God, how great he is, how loving he is, how mighty he is. Because when we understand how big he is and how awesome he is in comparison to who we are, it causes us to come to a place of humility and to lift our hands and lift our voices and to live our lives in a way that, that displays how much we believe he is worth, how much we see his worth. And that is truly the essence of worship. So as we worship today, I, I'm continually thinking through the, the beauty of our God who is worthy to be praised. It connects with our passage today because to understand Peter's call for the believer to walk in humility and to walk in harmony and to love one another, as we're going to see in today's text, you have to understand where Peter's coming from. You have to understand how he sees God, and you have to understand the broader context of, of the, even the passage that he uses. Uh, Peter in the text today, and we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Three of those verses of our text today are actually five verses from Psalm 34, the psalm that we read throughout the worship service. And to understand the, the, the value or, the, or what Peter's trying to communicate to us, you have to understand Psalm 34, for one, and the background of Psalm 34, which we'll get to a little bit more later. Psalm 34 is a psalm that David wrote while he was fleeing Saul. And if you're familiar with that story, as David fled from Saul the king, at least on two occasions, David had the opportunity to put Saul to death and chose not to because he believed that was not his place. How could David, who, who had such an incredible enemy in Saul, David, who had already been ordained uh, as the king of Israel, the, the king of the Jews by Samuel the prophet, had already been told he was going to be king, now who is a, a, a fleeing from this evil king who has lost his mind, how could David have two opportunities to put Saul to death and refuse to? Because David believed that that was not his job, it was God's job. Because God was big enough to handle all of his problems. David, in, in all of his weaknesses and all of his struggles, there's one thing that's pretty consistent throughout David's life. He understood how big God was. He understands how big God is. And because he understood God, we get these incredible hymns of worship from his pen, from his own heart, from his own head. But we also get the image of him living that out, surrendering his life, not taking it into his own hands, but trusting God every step of the way. David submitted his life to Saul, and at the end of his life, when Absalom sought to take the throne away from David, David once again submitted his life. In both cases, not really submitting to the king before, the king who would, uh, who would follow him, but submitting himself to the Lord. I had uh, I'd recommended a book. I think that the one we had out there was The Prisoner in the Third Cell, right? Uh, if in, anybody that read the book that I'd recommended, The Prisoner in the Third Cell, there's another book written by the same author called The Tale of Three Kings. And it's the, this story that I'm telling you today. David, that middle king, trusted the Lord to put him where he needed to be and the Lord to keep him where he needed to be as long as he needed to be there 
knowing that the Lord was big enough to deal with his enemies on the front end and on the back end. When we find ourselves in that place with that heart, we will find ourselves able to submit our will in this world as Peter calls us to. We'll find ourselves able to submit to governing authorities, to submit to those who've been placed in leadership over us, to submit to our spouses in a loving relationship in a marriage. We'll find ourselves able to trust the Lord and submit in everyday life in a very real way. Today we come to what Peter's, in fact, we'll read it in just a second. In verse eight, Peter begins that verse with the, with the word finally. Now, this is not the end of the letter. So when you see that in the middle of the letter, you gotta kind of ask, okay, what's he summing up? What's he bringing finality to? And what he's summing up is he's, he's summing up this kind of a sermon that he's given us on submission. That, that began back with a, a call to submit to governing authorities and is extended through uh, uh, the example of Christ as a perfect picture of submission. And then last week we looked at how we ought to learn to submit our will to the, our spouse's will in a marriage relationship for the betterment of the marriage. So we lay down our, our desire so that God can use us to fulfill his purposes in the marriage. So. So Peter is coming to the conclusion of this teaching. Now read with me, and he's going to end it in this, this teaching with Psalm 34, or a portion of Psalm 34. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and let him do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Those are David's words recorded in Psalm 34. And when you have the context of what I just shared with you, David was in the midst of fleeing from Saul during that time. And you hear those words, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That is David's statement of faith. As he is fleeing this Saul who has become his enemy, he's simply saying, I trust the Lord. The Lord hasn't forgotten me. The Lord sees me. The, the Lord also sees what the evil person's doing, and the Lord will deal with him in his time. I, David, am going to trust the Lord. And that's what Peter's calling us to do when we surrender and submit our will, our desire, our dreams, our hopes, our flesh. When we surrender our lives over to Christ to do things his way, to pursue what he's called us to pursue, to ask him to give us new dreams and an understanding of what really matters in life. When we make that, that decision in life to, to trust Christ, we'll find ourselves in a position where we can submit our will to those temporary things around us. So beginning here in, in, in verse eight, the, the first, in verse eight, we have five uh, 
they're commands given in the form of, uh, uh, oh, I've, I've lost the term all of a sudden. I've lost the, uh, the, the, it doesn't matter. They're adjectives. All, all five of these are, are, are adjectives in the Greek, but Peter's calling us to have these attributes uh, in our lives. So he says, finally, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, compassionate, and humble. So finally, after, after talking about all of this submission, finally, here's how it's going to look, guys. Every single one of you in the body of Christ ought to have these five attributes that define you. Now, some scholars will argue that, that these attributes kind of have a pyramid scheme. Uh, they, that you have like-mindedness, or the word really means harmony, harmonious, or united in spirit on the front end and humble on the back end. Sympathetic and compassionate sound like they, they mean pretty close to the same thing. And the middle, the peak of this chiastic construction, which is a, a, a poetic kind of term, uh, co- poetic construction that would highlight what's most important at the peak of that is love one another. I think that there's some truth to that, but I still think that there's five clear adjectives here that we need to pay attention to. The first one is this, finally, church, be harmonious, be united in spirit. It doesn't mean that you're all going to love all of the same things or you're all going to have the same job. In fact, uh, one of the greatest pictures of unity in the body of the Christ is what we find when Paul describes the varying spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, Paul is describing the spiritual gifts of uh, the power gifts and he's describing some of the, uh, the, the offices there at the end of chapter 12. But in all of his description of those spiritual gifts, the apostle Paul upholds the importance and the value of unity in the body of Christ. Even to the point that he says, sometimes if your spiritual gift is specifically, he's dealing there with the Corinthians. He says, if God's given you the spiritual gift of tongues and you believe that you have a message of tongues to deliver, but it's going to cause disunity in the body, keep your mouth shut. How many times would it, would it do us well, even if we know that we're right, or we know that we feel like we have something to say, if it was going to cause disunity in the body, we keep our mouth shut for the, for the harmony in the body that Paul holds up in, in his discussion of spiritual gifts as so important. Unity in the body, working together, a like-mindedness is the, the translation that, that's used here in the CSB. So Peter's saying, all of you be harmonious, be united in spirit, be like-minded. You, you serve the same purpose. Second, he tells us to, uh, besides being harmonious, to be sympathetic, to have sympathy. The word here literally is sum patheo. Patheo is that to, to have empathy or pathos, to, to care, to have a sense of, of, of caring for or, or connecting to somebody else's uh, pain and their suffering. And when you attach that preposition sum with it, it's to suffer with. That's really what the word means. When you have a brother or sister in Christ who is hurting, who is suffering, you want to be there with them. You want to walk with them through the difficulty. That's what sympathy means. That's the real root of sympathy. When uh, 
I, you knew I was going to have to pick on you a little bit. When, when Tommy went into the hospital, Tommy had a, a short illness this week. We ended up in the emergency room. His good friend, James, had to go spend some time with him. James had to meet him there in the hospital. And in fact, what I heard was that Debbie was in there with Tommy and he, he really wasn't doing good. And so when James gets there, Debbie leaves so that James can come in the, the hospital room with Tommy. And five minutes later, Tommy was doing great. His brother was there for him to stand alongside of him. Now, now I've heard there was something in there about a holy kiss from First Thessalonians chapter 5. I don't know about that. Uh, both of them are telling me they have no memory of that. You know what, what sympathy means is that we as a church body, when somebody hurts, we join with them in their suffering. That's really what it boils down to. We have a desire. In fact, I've had to learn sometimes as pastor, uh, in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've learned sometimes it's best for me not to jump in the truck and dash to the hospital right away, but to wait. For, for one reason, sometimes we spend so little time in the hospital, uh, you know, people are in and out so quick, but, our, but my desire as a pastor is to be there when, when one of my church members is hurting, when somebody's suffering, that, that we have that, that connection with one another as, as followers of Christ, that sum patheo, to suffer with. Third, and this is what, as I said, some would argue is the peak of this chiasm is to love one another. And the word that Peter uses here is not uh, agape, which is the, the, the word that we generally see in the New Testament elevated. It's the word phileo. It's the word for brotherly love. And so he's accentuating this familial relationship that we are to have in the body of Christ, that we are to have brotherly love for one another. We're to care for one another because we have a connection. Now, you know, I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true. Oftentimes, our connections within the church body, our church family connections, are thicker than our blood relationship connections. And in a lot of ways, that's true. And part of the reason is just uh, a practical, because you can have a brother or sister physically. If they don't know the Lord, you're going to spend 80 years with them at most on this earth. But you people that know the Lord, you're going to have to spend eternity with me. I don't care if you are an Aggie or a Sooner fan. We're all in it together. We're going to be in heaven forever and ever. And so the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, it, it draws us and it causes us to, to, uh, to, auto, to, to need to and want to love one another. We ought to love each other with brotherly love. We ought to have that kind of love that's sacrificial and loving and caring for each other because we're in it together and we're going to spend eternity together. The fourth adjective that he uses here is the word compassion. Be compassionate. And, and once again, that, that's very much like brotherly love. I mean, like sympathy to, to come alongside the one who's hurting. I think it's a little bit different because sympatheo seems to to uh, focus in on someone who's suffering, to be there when, with someone who's suffering. Compassion, it may not be, you, you might have compassion on somebody not just because they're suffering. You have compassion for whatever other reason. 
but we can have compassion on one another within the body of Christ. We can care for, we can show mercy, and we can show grace toward one another within the body of Christ and be compassionate toward one another. And then finally, he ends with what he's been hammering on uh, for the last couple chapters with humility, to be humble. What's it truly mean to be humble? We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about this. I don't think we need to spend a whole lot more time here, but it's, it's this idea that, that I'm, I'm going to submit sometimes my will, my preferences, my desires for the betterment of the group. I'm going to humble myself and say, you know what? I, I don't have to have it my way. Sometimes it's a simple recognition that I might be wrong. Now, my wife's not ever wrong, but I might be wrong. Yeah, I, I, of course, I jokingly say that, but we have to come to a place where we realize that our way is not the only way. Our preference is not always best, and sometimes we're just flat out wrong. I, I've learned uh, some, some, some ways this is expressed in my life because I've learned where I'm weak. I don't know how many times, you know, Matthew's been with us five years. I don't know how many times Matthew's come into me and he said, Pastor, I want to I show you this idea I have. And he'll show me some idea. And, and oftentimes I look at that and, and he's changing the seating or he's picked a color for something or he's going he's gonna to put in some new, you know, video or something. And I'm like, Matthew, I don't care. I just don't care. You know what? And here's why. It, we, when we were going to paint the offices, people were asking me, what color are we going to paint the offices? I said, I don't know. Go ask Kevin and Matthew. You know why? Because they're better at it than I am. Hey, he's a whole lot better with, with an eye for, for beauty and an and eye for what's aesthetically pleasing, an eye for what helps draw people into worship. I'm not. You know, I might have my favorite colors. I might have my desire, but I've learned to say there's people around me that are a whole lot better at that than I am. I just need to keep my mouth shut and let them do their job. Now, in all honesty, as a young man, more often than not, I thought I was right. I remember sitting in a meeting, and some of you have heard me tell this story before. I was sitting in a meeting with uh, uh, leaders from First Baptist Church May. We were getting ready to build the new uh, uh, worship facility there, and we were doing it all with volunteer labor. And in fact, uh, we were building it with block walls, and we we're going to put wood trusses up there. We're having the trusses manufactured here in in the Haltom City, uh, North Fort Worth, Haltom City area. There's a trust company there, and I it was going to be my job to bring a check. <laughs> this was back before internet days. Okay, I was going to drive up here with a check, a down payment on those trusses, and give them the exact dimensions of what trusses we wanted what trusses we needed. There were two different types of trusses we were having built. And over the sanctuary, we we're going to have this vaulted ceiling. And we, uh, I had already learned that on these trusses, there was a certain angle that I wanted on that vaulted ceiling. I, I wanted the ceiling to be vaulted at a 412 pitch, which meant the roof had to be an 812 pitch. And that's on, on, on the span that we were making with wooden trusses. So that's the, I wanted that 812 pitch. I'm sitting in a meeting with these men from the church and we're going over that and, uh, 
I said, well, we've got to decide. And they said, well, eight you can't stand on an 812 pitch on a, uh, a metal roof. So we can't do that. We have to have a 612 pitch. I said, look, you can't because it's going to mess up my design on the inside. It's not going to look right. I've got a little balcony area up there that the sound equipment's going to be in and you're going to close that down. You're going to look like monkeys up there in a window. I said, I don't want my, my sound people to look like monkeys up there. And so we talked about this for a little bit and uh, went on to something else. And I had to go down to my office at the other end of the building to get, get some paperwork. I came back and uh, we finished discussing that and, I, and we were, they were going to close out the meeting. I said, wait a minute, I've got to know exactly which, which trusses we're going to order because I got to go tomorrow and, uh, and place the order. And they said, oh, well, when you were in your office, we decided. <laughs> I was mad because they were wrong. And I was right. I was mad about it. And now what happened, I was going to have to redraw my interior elevations. Y'all didn't know I, I even do this, did you? I, I was the, the, the architect on it. I was going to have to redraw all of my interior elevations and it was going to change what the inside of the church was going to look like. And I didn't like it. Right up until we started putting tin on that roof. And when we started putting the tin on that roof and I'm the, the youngest one on our volunteer team there that was going to have to put the ridge cap on, I realized that every one of those old guys was right and I was wrong. They knew more than I did. I learned a lesson that day. I submitted to their leadership, but I didn't like it. But I, I learned to, to step back and say, you know what? I need to trust the people around me, even if I think I'm right. And you know, what if they are wrong? What if everybody did get mad about the, the seating in here the first week that we changed the chairs around? So what? We move them back, right? But we didn't have that. If we're going to function together as a body of believers, and it doesn't matter how big the body is, honestly, if you have a very big family and you're going to live under the same roof and the same household, you're going to have to learn to function with a little bit of humility because parents, sometimes your kids are going to be right about something and you're going to be wrong. Sometimes your mom and dad are going to be right, even though you're absolutely convinced you are. Ultimately, when we learn to function with a, with a little bit of humility, we can achieve that, that harmony within the body, with, within the organization, and it's most important within the church body, that we, we serve together in harmony. We have sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. That is, that is the, the, the spirit that Peter is calling us to live with as opposed to a rebellious or selfish spirit that always sees it my way and has to have it my way, has to do things the way I want them done. When, when we're humble enough to recognize that we could be wrong, it goes a long way toward making us teachable and usable for the kingdom of God. And then Peter gets into uh, verse nine. Now he's going to kind of tell us how to respond to difficult people. And you've already seen this in, in the last couple of weeks, not necessarily in the husband-wife relationship. No, actually in that, he talked about how to respond. What wife, what if you have a husband who's an unbeliever? How are you going to respond to those circumstances? So Peter gives us kind of a summary here of how we respond to difficult people. He says, don't pay back evil for evil and insult for insult, but on the contrary, give a blessing. 
since you were called for this so that you might inherit a blessing. How our attitude and our spirit toward each other in, in when we have disagreement or when we are different is going to be displayed in whether or not we retaliate, whether or not we strike back, whether we have to have it our way, or are we going to speak evil as he gets into uh, in his quote from Psalm 34. I, uh, I saw something yesterday I'm going to share with you, but let me start with the positive side first. Uh, now, I, I'm wearing my shirt today. You know, we know that the Lord loves the longhorns because the longhorns have that, the, the sunset, he, he makes just to look like, uh, you know, burnt orange. Now we know that sports is not real life. Most of us know that sports is not real life. You, you know, I, I, I saw a story not long ago that, that somebody got shot in Oklahoma because they got an argument over whether their Chevy or a Ford was the best pickup truck. And people will get, in, get into that kind of stuff with sports in particular and, and will cause all kinds of issues. So, so sports is not life, but oftentimes sports reflects life. I saw a great picture of, of Harmony a few years ago or, or what we were talking about in the first section a few years ago. In 2005, when Texas was getting ready to play USC for the national championship, I saw what is still one of my favorite t-shirts that I've ever seen. It was a maroon t-shirt. And many of you are familiar with the, the, the Aggies love to wear a shirt that has a longhorn on it with a horn sawed off and the horn's broken. It says, saw them off. This t-shirt, however, had the horns put back in place. It had band-aids on them and it said one day only. <laughs> so it was our Aggie brothers and sisters who were going to support the longhorns on that day, one day only now, but they were going to support the longhorns for that day when they were playing USC for the national championship. On the other end of that spectrum, I saw this yesterday. This was on uh, texasags.com. Uh, I think it, it is a, a blog site for, for Texas Aggies only. And Red, uh, the, see his name is Rainier Aggie 09, posted this survey. Ags beat Miami or Bama beats TU. You can only have one. And he writes, I picked the Bama win. I think I can recover from that scenario faster than a Texas win over Alabama. So here's, here's his deal. He's putting out a survey and he's saying, would, for Aggies, would you rather us win or Texas lose? And he said, you know what? I would rather lose to Miami as long as Texas loses. And, and so you, you see in that this, this vitriol, I mean, that is, that is a weird hatred. I, I don't want our team to win as long as Texas loses too. Uh, oftentimes, well, well, let me, maybe we ought to just take a moment of silence for Rainier, Rainier Aggie 09, because he didn't get either one of his wishes. The Aggies lost and Texas won. But sometimes we, we, what, what, what a dysfunctional, uh, when we're dysfunctional in our relationships, sometimes retaliation eats at us to such an extent or a hatred eats at us at such an extent that we're, we're more concerned about giving evil to someone else, even if it hurts us. That's what I'm getting to here. Have you ever seen someone that was so caught up in hurting the other person that they didn't care what it did to themselves? 
You know, oftentimes that's exactly what happens when we focus on vengeance, when we focus on hatred toward another human being. We end up doing more damage to ourselves, not just spiritually, sometimes physically and emotionally, because we're living in this hatred, we're living in this evil. And so when, what Peter's calling us to do is be willing not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. Trust the Lord in it. And one of the reasons I know that that's the tenor and the tone of what Peter's trying to communicate is because he uses Psalm 34 as his text, where David was trusting the Lord. He had the opportunity to destroy an evil king, but he chose not to. He chose to put it in the Lord's hands. What Peter's telling us here is don't walk around with that, that vitriol, that hatred in, in your heart all of the time. Don't, don't worry about returning evil for evil, insult for insult. And in fact, just bless them. Now, I don't mean like in the sweet Southern way, well, bless your heart, you know. <laughs> Sometimes that's done with evil and vitriol. It's said that way. But the idea is that when we have compassion and love and care for one another, even for the, those who are outside of the faith, those who are evil, those who are lost, when we understand the reason that somebody does what they do may very well be because they're lost and they don't know Jesus, it's a whole lot easier for us not to return evil for evil. But to pray for them, to pray that God pour out his love and compassion on them the way that he poured out his love and compassion on us. How do we respond to difficult people? By not seeking to get revenge or to retaliate or insult Peter says, respond to difficult people by giving them a blessing. I would suggest that you bless them by praying for their lost soul, praying that God would, would, would cure the evil in the heart that can only be cured by the blood of the cross. Instead of carrying around the, the pain and the suffering in ourselves to get somebody back, just give it to God and let him tend to, to it. So respond, how do you respond to difficult people? If we're going to walk in, in harmony and, and, and reflect the, the kind of spirit that God's called us to reflect as, as humble servants of his, we trust him with the difficult people and don't take it on ourselves to retaliate. How do we deal with difficult circumstances? I believe that, that this is the primary focus of why Peter used Psalm 34. And I told you I'd get to that a little bit more. Now, he chose a portion of, of Psalm uh, 34 that comes from the, the latter uh, three quarters of Psalm 34. It, I was going to read all of Psalm 34 today before I knew that Matthew was already using it for uh, uh, our, our liturgy to guide us in worship. But I want to read the first part of it. Now, first of all, the, the subheading to Psalm 34, uh, the title that, that's given to Psalm 34 is the Lord delivers the righteous. The subheading that would have been placed there long before that says concerning David when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech who drove him out and he departed. So this is during David's time where he was fleeing from one city to the next and then one cave to the next. He writes these words. Put yourself in that setting. What kind of life was he living? What kind of threat was he under? And he writes these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord 
The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt in his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces are never ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now, our text, what, what Peter used, begins down in verse 12. So he says, when, who is someone who desires life, love, uh, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good and seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Do you hear the, the, the cry of, of David when, when he even, he goes on to say, he protects my bones. When, when, when the circumstances around me are trying to crush me, the Lord protects me. The Lord watches over me. The Lord provides for me. And so like I said at the beginning of this, one of the best ways to, to live the kind of life that Peter's calling us to live with humility and sacrifice and submission is to first recognize how big God is. Because when we understand how great he is and how mighty he is and how glorious he is and he loves me, the things on this earth get really small in light of his power and his glory and his care for us. And then the, the, the enemies of this world become really small in comparison to the greatness of our God and his power and his love for us. But even the circumstances of this life that can seem so grueling seem minor and temporary in comparison to the greatness of our God and his care for us. You remember back in the, the introduction to 1 Peter when this letter kind of started out and Peter talked about suffering? And he said, the Lord will, will allow you to go through times of suffering where, where your faith will be purified by fire. You'll go through rough times. It's like you're going through the fire so that your faith will be purified in him. How can I, how can I deal with those kind of circumstances in life? I deal with them because of the greatness of my God. So I don't lash out. I, I don't allow my tongue to speak evil. I don't allow deceit to come, to come from my lips. And in fact, what I do is I, I turn my heart away from evil and I turn it toward good because he is a trustworthy God. I can put my life in his hands. That's what David was talking about when he wrote Psalm 34. And in the context not just of this text, but more importantly, in the context of 1 Peter, I don't, I don't really have any question that that's what Peter's talking about here. Peter says, you can trust God. He's big enough to handle difficult people. He's big enough to handle your challenges and your difficult circumstances of your life. So you can walk through life with the right heart, the right spirit. You don't have to take it on yourself to, to strike out at evil. You don't have to take it on yourself to get your way, to get your thing you can walk with him and trust him. He's trustworthy. Seek and pursue peace. 
It's the last command of this text. It was Peter quotes from Psalm 34. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. If you walk in the righteousness of Christ, God watches over and cares for you. Now, we know none of us are righteous in our own flesh. But if you're one of his, you've been washed by the blood of Christ. You're righteous in him and his eyes are on you. He's watching over you. There's not one circumstance in your life, not one evil thing that's been done to you that he's missed. He's watching over you and he cares for you. I'd encourage you if you've never put your faith and trust in that God, who is that big, who is that mighty, who is that glorious, that you don't wait another day. He's the one not only who created the universe, but he created you and he has a plan and a purpose for your life and my life. We can live a life of peace and live a life of joy and live a life that is characterized by love when we walk in a relationship with his spirit. We don't have to fret over what's going on in the circumstances of this world and we don't have to fret over what what the enemies might throw at us when we recognize him and we put our faith and trust in him and him alone. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.